Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. What's worth dying for? That's a question that my guess is most of us can avoid on most of the days of our lives. But it's a question that it's at the heart of my guest, Marcy Shore's new book, The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. While the world watched the uprising on the Maidan as an episode in geopolitics, those in Ukraine during the extraordinary winter of 2013 and 14 lived the revolution as an existential transformation. The blurring of night and day, the loss of a sense of time, the sudden disappearance of fear, the imperative to make choices. In this lyrical book, Marcy Shore evokes the human face of the Ukrainian revolution, grounded in the true stories of activists and soldiers, parents and children. Shore's book blends a narrative of suspenseful choices with historians' reflections on what revolution is and what it means. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Marcy Short. Marcy, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, you've written a book that's forthcoming in just a few days. Uh, it's Unfortunately, I think it's going to be eclipsed by Fire and Fury. And uh, Every book is going to be eclipsed by that this week. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably. Yeah, understand that. Yeah, uh, no, but this is a fantastic book called "The Ukrainian Night: An Intimate History of the Revolution," and you are an Eastern Europeanist. How do you? How did you choose that as a subdiscipline? Like, at, at what point are you like, "Hey, I want I, I want to do PhD work and be an expert in Eastern Europe." That's it. Was it spy movies? Is it family history? Like, what 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 sort of lends somebody to go in that direction? It was neither spy movies nor family history in my case. Um, in my case, it was very much a generational history, which is almost stereotypical, although I think people have now forgotten it. I was 17 in 1989. I was at an impressionable age when the Berlin Wall fell. I was the last generation to grow up during the Cold War with a sense of the world divided into these two camps. I had no idea really of what communism was or what Eastern Europe was or what was happening, but it was the 80s and it was the evil empire and it was Reagan and there was an iron curtain and perhaps there would be a nuclear war. And then one day, literally, you know, in the case of the Berlin Wall, from one moment to the next, the wall fell and that world changed. And I was 17, so I was extremely, you know, vulnerable to this, the, the seduction of this kind of drama. So I immediately wanted to go because I, I understood that something dramatic had happened. Um, and then you had the whole wonderful story of, of Václav Havel and the imprisoned playwright who was very sweet and cute and, you know, spoke in this very gentle lyrical language. And suddenly he's no longer in prison. He's in this very beautiful castle overlooking a river. So it was an absolutely irresistible fairy tale for an impressionable young person. And that's why there well, were... Not, not irresistible. I'm guessing lots of your friends resisted. <laughs> I'm guessing all your friends didn't want to go to Eastern Europe, right? Well, that's a good point. Not everybody went to Eastern Europe. But it is true that when I first went to Eastern Europe, when I was first in Prague, you know, in the early mid-1990s, Prague was just filled with tens of thousands of young Americans writing the great expatriate novel and imagining, you know, being in Paris in the 1920s. 
and perhaps the only difference between, you know, myself and, and everybody else is that eventually like they got over it and they went home and they got lives for themselves. And I, I never did, so to speak. So do, do you find, you no, know, you teach undergraduates too. I right? do. I teach undergraduates and graduate students. So do you find, you know, there's this study that's floating around the news in the past few months that like millennials, like a, a, a surprising number of millennials don't think it's that important to live in a liberal democracy. And it's something like 30 some percent or something. Do you attribute that to to being the generation that sort of forgot about the Iron Curtain and forgot about the Soviet Union? And for, I mean, is there a sort of taking for granted the democratic project or, or, that comes, you think, from not having that be fresh in, in people's minds? That's a really interesting question, and it's one I think about a lot because I, I teach students and I'm kind of deeply engaged with the students. Um, I mean, one thing I think happened, and I realize that everybody has beaten up on pre- poor Franz Fukuyama, who never had any bad intentions, but that declaration of, you know, the liberal teleology of progress and liberal triumphalism and the end of history and the wicked witch is dead and we all live happily ever after um, – did, I think, produce a kind of complacency that the story was over and the Wicked Witch is dead and we all live happily ever after. Um, and that lasted for a certain period of time. Um, and the fragility of liberalism, the way in which it was always wrought with tensions and always a very fragile, delicate project, in some sense, ceased to be appreciated. Um, and it's also true that, of course, the people growing up now don't have any memory of that time. It took me a while after I started teaching to realize that I was really the last generation of the Cold War and the memory was gone. A few years ago, I was at this conference in Bratislava. There's a fantastic organization in Slovakia called Central European Forum that every November has this conference that is essentially just conversations among intellectuals from different places um, on a different topic every time. Um, and the, the times when I've been there, my, my husband and I are usually... It sounds like they do that at the White House, like, every week, right? Yeah, now. exactly. I mean, it's right. Like, that, totally like that kind of crowd. Like, you sit and you talk about, you know, philosophy and, you know, current events. And But I was... The la- I'm, I'm often, you know, myself or my husband and myself are the only Americans. I'm used to being the token American. But a few years ago when I was there, I think the subject was democratic citizenship. Um, my, my colleague, Marta Shimechkova, who organizes this, invited an, an activist from Occupy by Wall Street, you know, to come be on these panels. And he was a young guy, I mean, but not scandalously young, probably close to 30. And after one of our panels, we were all having dinner together, you know, and Marta said, hey, it's, you know, the anniversary of the revolution. And her husband, Martin, was at this bar with all the old revolutionaries celebrating. She's like, let's go over there afterwards. And the the young American who was sitting next to me turns to me and and says, Marcy, what, what old revolutionaries? And I said, oh, from the revolution of 1989. And he said, what happened in 1989? And, and that was, wow. that was a moment when I was totally shaken that, that a kind of, that an educated person, a political activist could fly to Bratislava, you know, here in Slovakia and say, what happened in 1989? Then I felt old because for my generation, that's inconceivable. That would have been a great opening for a romance novel. <laughs> he was a young American. He was young, but not scandalously young. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. So I mean, perfect. he wasn't 18. He wasn't like somebody who, you know, just got out of high school and was abroad for the first time. Um, he wasn't a stupid person, but he just had no idea. And for 
for my generation, that was so formative. I mean, you couldn't not know what happened in 1989. And then I realized yeah, it's you gone. Remember, it's you remember over. Yeltsin on the tank? Yes. You know, yes. Like, uh, yeah, I, all those, you know, it, oh gosh, yeah. I mean, these vivid memories on, on the news, like, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It, you know, it's interesting. So you're writing this book about the, the Ukrainian revolution in 2014, which I'm assuming, sadly, most Americans are probably like me and know almost nothing about the topic. Like if, if, if that's the double jeopardy category, most people are <laughs> nothing. Right? Yes. But, you, you know, it's funny that, that the Ukraine now is regularly discussed in public parlance. I mean, in the news, Paul Manafort, our relationship with, uh, with the Ukraine. In fact, I didn't, uh, the, Current administration just agree to uh, sell arms uh, to to Ukrainian factions or something. Or I mean, there's like this is this is in the news in a way. I'm guessing you didn't think when you're writing about it. Wow, I've got a timely book coming out. No, I never thought it was going to have direct contemporary political relevance on this side of the Atlantic. I mean, when I wrote this book, I was thinking of, of myself as I often do um, as a kind of cultural mediator. I mean, that's what those of us who write about times and places other than our present, you know, and our own country, we're cultural mediators trying to explain the presence of others, you know, to Americans in some sense, although not only Americans. And in that, in that sense, we do what novels do. It's an exercise in empathy. It's an exercise in understanding the other. I never expected and, and to be honest, never desired for it to have any contemporary political relevance. When I realized that you know, Paul Manafort um, was advising Trump, and Frank Foyer did a fantastic piece on this. And I had met Frank in Kiev um, right right after the revolution, and he he understood what was going on in Ukraine. He's not a Slavicist, but he learned a lot about what was going on in Ukraine, and he came there that spring of 2014. And when I read his piece on Paul Manafort as Trump's advisor, I just had this sickening feeling. You know, I, I just, I understood where that could go. I understood the irony, you know, and I thought, how how could this have happened? Yeah, and it's funny because the popular sort of armchair wisdom, right, is like the story of the West influencing East. And here it seems like, wow, here's East influencing West. West. Yes, yes. And that, that's been an interesting new direction because for so much of my, you know, my time as a historian, there's, I've been participating in discussions about, you know, is there a liberal teleology of progress? Is Eastern Europe backwards? You know, do eventually they get to where the West is? But later, you know, what does it mean to have all this Western influence pour into Eastern Europe after 1989? Is it cultural imperialism? For better or for worse, all the discussions had to do with the influence moving from West to East. And now suddenly this radical inversion. And this, this past summer, I, I organized a workshop in Vienna um, with, uh, with some of my colleagues in Vienna um, called Post-Truth, What the West Can Learn from Russia and Ukraine, you know, which was something that I never would have imagined several years ago I would be doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is, right. I mean, I, I don't, we're about the same age, I think. And I don't remember in my lifetime the level of skepticism about the durability of our democratic society, of its institutions. I, I mean, I, I, it's the high that I can remember in my lifetime. You know, and I wonder, does that, I mean, what lessons do you carry over from your study of sort of post-Soviet, the post-Soviet East and civil society? And, and I mean, you talk in the book a lot about the fragility of the liberal project and the ambiguity of it at, at times. 
it has always been fragile. The liberal project has always been wrought with tensions. You know, it was always wrought with the tensions of the Enlightenment philosophy from which liberal came, um, all of the vulnerabilities of rationalism. And liberalism tends to assume, you know, that people you know, will act rationally. All things being equal, people will act rationally. Well, A, all things are never equal, and B, people very often don't act rationally. I mean, this is something that I think Russians understand. You know, Dostoevsky expressed this brilliantly in Notes from the Underground. But what if reason is not satisfying? Rationality is, is existentially thin. I mean, Cheslav Miłosz talks in um, his famous book, The Captive Mind, which he writes in the early 1950s, right after defecting from Stalinist Poland, he says, you know, the, the man of the East can never take Americans seriously because they haven't had the kind of experiences that teach them that the habit of civilization is fragile. You know, Americans have this feeling like that people on the Titanic had, oh, oh, this ship can't sink. Oh, oh, but it can. And if it hits an iceberg, it will. It's interesting because Malcolm Gladwell in his podcast, Revisionist History, tells the story of Wilt Chamberlain and how, you know, the only flaw he had in his game was like he was a terrible free throw shooter. And it made him really vulnerable. People would just foul him like, you know, like it, it, in close games. And for like a year, he went shooting underhand and and had a good free throw percentage shot. Uh, you know, his his average went way up, but he stopped doing it. He couldn't do it. And. Malcolm Gladwell is like, this is so irrational. And I was reading a book recently by Alan Jacobs called How to Think, you know, Guide for Turbulent Times. He said, it's completely rational. The guy lived to sleep with women and it looked effeminate. It looked, you know, like, like the, when Gladwell's astounded, that's, it's like his motivations are uh, rational of a sort, <laughs> but they're just not. Yeah. I mean, the, the human nature is not, uh, is not nakedly rational, right? This in a way I think was Obama's tragic flaw. You know, and I, I, I miss Obama every day. Um, I think that he came into the presidency, you know, as the kind of model enlightenment figure, bearing all the virtues and the vulnerabilities of enlightenment rationalism. You know, he comes in assuming goodwill, you know, thinking that a harmony of interest is possible and assuming reason, you know, and he says things like, well, I understand we all have very different feelings about abortion, but surely we can all agree that it's in everybody's interest to reduce the number of pregnancies, of unwanted pregnancies, that result in abortions. So let's get together and talk about, you know, how we can, you know, in a bipartisan way facilitate access to contraception and sex education. Th that's the enlightenment position. You assume rationally that there's a common ground and through knowledge you can work towards a solution. He didn't really understand how to deal with irrationality and ill will. Yeah, and that's interesting because, you know, he was a student of Reinhold Niebuhr and quoted Niebuhr a lot, right? And, and the whole kind of realist project. And yet it just, I mean, maybe that's one of those things where he likes, you like something intellectually, but it just doesn't shape you temperamentally. You know, uh, and that's, yeah, I mean. When you wrote the book, first of all, I mean, it's a beautifully written book. Uh, I, I mean, the prose is really elegant. And I mean, it's just very moving. As a historian, are you, is there a, like a professional risk in writing a book like this in, in that this does not read like a traditional sort of uh, academic historian's work? I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it does have a novelistic kind of quality to it in the best sense. I mean, you really tell stories of people that, that are living in the wake of this Ukrainian revolution of 2014 and just in the wake of sort of Ukrainian ambiguity, you know, before that and after that moment. Like, are, 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 do you ever worry about like professional, like, um, 
cynicism about the uh, about the the medium or the form um well the question is is there a professional risk objectively yes there's definitely a professional risk and i think many of my my senior colleagues who were trying to look out for me you know would have preferred that i i not write it um subjectively it as a matter of principle and you know um i don't know perhaps self-absorption it's never something i've taken into consideration and, and this perhaps is an influence of Eastern Europe. You know, America has professional academics. You know, Eastern Europe still has a tradition of intellectuals. You know, intellectuals cross discipline. Intellectuals have a kind of moral obligation to speak the truth. Um, and I've, you know, that's been in some sense my milieu, you know, for my whole adult life now. I've been going back and forth from Eastern Europe. And when I, it's, it's a book I never planned to write. You know, and I, I resisted writing for some time. And then when I, I realized. Yeah, yeah, you talk, you talk in the intro how this started as a modest essay about a Ukrainian translator, right? Like that, that this is not planned to become this project. It, it had never planned to become this project. Um, I thought for all sorts of reasons that I would not be the right person to write it. But when I, I realized that perhaps I was, and then I, I had a talk with my wonderful literary agent, you know, Jillian McKenzie. And she said, Marcy, I would love, I love this project and I would love to sell this book for you, but I know that you're about to come up for tenure. And I know that this is not the book that will get you tenure, that this is not an academic book. And I don't want you to push something that's push you to do something that's going to be bad for your career. So you have to tell me. And I said, you know, Jillian, the thing is like my friends in Kiev were like out there getting shot at, you know, and if, if we decide that someone else is better positioned to tell their stories and write this book, then I am happy to step away because that's very possible. Um, but if that's not the case, then, and I decide not to tell these stories, you know, because it won't look as good in my 10 year review as if I were to, you know, finish some other project instead that goes in an academic journal. I don't think I can live with myself. That feels grotesque to me. Yeah. And I wish more academics wrote books like this. I mean, because it, well, again, it's a great read. It, it, so it's, it's not hard reading. It's fun. I mean, it's deeply moving, but also it, it is, it is like a contribution to, to write books like this, right? To the public discourse, to our, our, our discernment of like, what's the good life? What do we value? How do we live and reason together and things like that? And, and I mean, I, I feel like as an academic, having a sense of like responsibility for that conversation is is a is a virtuous thing. Yeah. Also, this is like I have not read something by a professional historian in a while. I don't think that is this philosophical. Explicitly so. I mean, in the intro, you start talking. You talk about the Soviet Union as the end of sort of the failure of of Marxism as the last of the grand narratives which arguably brought, brings about the end of modernity as such. You talk about postmodernity believing, you know, beginning with this sort of revisiting of Nietzsche's death of God. And then you have this interesting quote in the intro. You say, with the revolution of 2014, the postmodern ended in Ukraine. Um, and he says, we still do not know how to, to conceptualize this new reality. I mean, can, can you say a little bit ab about that, about the end, the, the ending of, post-modernity in the Ukraine and, and, and the difficulty to conceive of what's next. Yeah, I found that a very provocative quote. Well, let me maybe start by saying something about, you know, for instance, how I talk about modernity and post-modernity to my students. You know, I teach a, a survey course on European intellectual history um, that goes more or less, you know, from Nietzsche, but really starting with Enlightenment Romanticism to the present. And the way I kind of in short form describe modernity to my students is that 
it's all an attempt to replace God. So enlightenment comes along, Voltaire, deism. Initially, God is not, God is not killed off. God is just kind of demoted. You know, God becomes a minor character. God is pushed to the side. God is there, but he's no longer pulling the strings and controlling our actions and, and guaranteeing so much. And then 1880s, you get Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and God is killed off. And the thing about God is that God fulfilled a lot of functions. You know, God simultaneously kind of guarantees, you know, that we have knowledge about the world, that we have a reason for being in the world. God gives us a source of ethics. God gives us a source of, of home. So you can kill off God, and that might be the thing to do. But then you've got a huge space to cover. You've got to then have some story about who you are and why you're here and where you're going that ties it all together. You know, so that story could be, you know, history with the capital H or it could be the nation. Um, but modernity was basically one long search to fill in for God, to find some kind of center, some kind of grounding point that ties it all together in God's absence. And when you cross that border into postmodernity, which arguably happens around 1968, um, and I, I, I make this argument in an, an essay I wrote on the, the prehistory of post-truth. If your readers are interested, I try to kind of describe this in short form. Um, then, then there's a kind of giving up. You know, then you decide that not only is there no God, there's no ersatz God, there's no one to take God's place, that truth is inherently unstable, it's inherently subjective, it subverts itself, um, that there's no such thing as stable meaning or stable truth or a stable subject. And that, that and not Marxism is really the moment when all that is solid melts into air. Marx writes in the Communist Manifesto, all that is solid melts into air, but it's not true then. It's true after 19. 68. It's true in postmodernism. And in some sense, the kind of revolt you get on the Maidan was a kind of insistence that it's not going to melt into air anymore, that there is going to be something solid, even if solid in a kind of existential sense that we can believe in that we're willing to stake our lives on. And the Maidan is like this kind of public square like in, in the Ukraine. This is where the, the revolution happens, right? Yes. Yes. And I try to describe that in the book and these wonderful map makers made this little map, which I, I hope will help readers. The thing about the Maidan in Kiev that's a little hard to envision, it's just a big public square in the center of Kiev, but it's huge. I mean, lots of towns, especially European towns and cities have big public squares. It's really, really big. Um, so we, they talk about, you know, thousands of people coming and setting up tents and setting up kitchens and living there. If you see it, you can appreciate more how there's so much space that could happen. And it's also a multi-level space. It's a very complex space. Can, before we go back to the Ukraine, can I just ask you one more thing about postmodernity and, and <laughs> sure. modernity? This is like, is, is that like the dream of somebody that teaches that survey course at a cocktail party? Can I just ask you one more thing about the truth? Oh, oh yeah, totally. Survey? I love <laughs> teaching that lecture course. <laughs> I, I, I feel like when we talk it, about modernity and postmodernity, it almost trades on an understanding of modernity that's exclusively understood as kind of rationalistic in its in, at its core and isn't romanticism an equal and ultimate part of like the modern story and it, it seems like if you viewed the modern 
story is a, a pendulum swing between the rationalism on one hand and the romanticism on the other. C- could you think of postmodernity as something like a hyper romantic turn? Uh, that's, that's interesting. There's certainly moments like in what is going on and this kind of rise of, you know, whether you call it neo-populism or nationalist populism, you can certainly see elements of romanticism and elements of postmodernism. I mean, there, there, there are moments where you almost get this kind of neo-romantic postmodern synthesis, which I mean, I think in like everything that happens in history, you have things that are coming back in new form, you know, things that are, have been around for a long time that are developing and new angles and new twists on them. I mean, all of modernity is some sense of playing out of the tension between enlightenment and romanticism, you know, between between reason and passion, you know, as two ways of understanding the world. And, and you talk in the in the intro too about how you kind of take a phenomenological approach. You quote Husserl, uh, I see Heidegger on your show. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's, that's another, I mean, that, struck me as I was reading like wow again I like I don't I I can't remember the last time I read an academic historian and I I mean I read it's not all I read but I read a lot of it you know like you know for, for interviews and things like that where the philosophical cards were so on the table <laughs> <laughs> and, and you and you talk about how look you, I'm, there's a reason I'm doing this like I'm not trying I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of tell the story of this revolution through the existential lens of the people in it like no, I'm not trying to sort of take this sort of bird's eye view, but view it from on the ground. Right. Well, I should first say that I'm a, you know, I'm an intellectual historian, which means that, you know, my career has been devoted to writing about the history of ideas and the history of the people who articulate them. You know, so this is kind of like what I do and this is what I know. But it's also true that at the moment when the the Ukrainian revolution happened, I was on leave at, at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, and I was working on a book about phenomenology in Eastern Europe which is a book that's been in my head for years that I was working on very slowly and has to do with Husserl and Heidegger and Kolokolsky and Patochka. But the, the short... Yeah, time- yeah, I, I know someone who, who is a psychiatrist and then did a PhD in philosophy, did a dissertation on Heidegger and didn't figure out until after he published his dissertation that Heidegger had become a Nazi. That seems impossible to me. I, 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 it first... Yes, I know. I know. I, I, I don't get it. I, I, although... Although you think about how Heidegger taught, right? They said that he would teach like Aristotle. All right, let me give you the intro. Aristotle was born, he lived, he worked, he died. Right. Now let's get into his thinking. So maybe that's, you know, maybe when you study Heidegger, like in certain sense, they teach Heidegger that way. Hey, he lived and died, now let's get to his work. (laughs) Then you can omit the Nazi period. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that is to some extent a difference between philosophy as as a field defined in America, especially analytical philosophy and intellectual history. Because for analytical philosophy, you know, recourse to biography is a kind of genealogical fallacy. It's all about the idea, the consistency of the idea. The argument works or it doesn't work. Whereas for historians situating people in time and space and bodies, these are the transcendental conditions and possibility for writing history. You never get to bracket life when you're writing history. But the, the, the way phenomenology comes into the book is I was writing this book about phenomenology and for, you know, for your readers who have done, you know, understandably other things besides read Husserl for the, you know, the past decade or so, you know, phenomenology is, is a lot about, you know, the world as it appears to you. You know, it's about looking at the world. So, you know, Husserl comes into this debate about long-standing debate about does the world exist? 
you know, is, is the world there? Is it just a projection of my consciousness? This is the realism idealism debate. You know, is that coffee cup really there or is it just a projection of my, of, of what's going on inside my head? And so the great question is how do you get from inside to outside, from consciousness to world, from subject to object? And Husserl comes along and says, yes, you can. He was the Obama figure. You know, he said, like, yes, because our consciousness is not closed inside of a box. The structure of consciousness is what he calls intentionality, which is that it kind of reaches out into the world and grabs the world. And phenomenological analysis is all about the world as it kind of appears to you. You know, it's about looking at pure experience. And so I was reading all of this philosophy, you know, and during the revolution, and I thought um, how the book comes about and how the original essay came about was that I was in Vienna at the time um, at this research institute in which I had several Ukrainian colleagues who were going back and forth between Kiev and Vienna the whole time. So it was very immediate for me because I was hearing from them day to day about what was happening. Um, and and at the same time, I was reading the German press more than I would be if I were here. And I saw how the American press didn't really understand what was going on. Understandably, it's far away. The German press was lukewarm at best and often cold um, and somewhat condescending. Um, and I saw how my my Ukrainian colleagues, many of whom were Germanists and, and worked in Germany, felt very hurt by this. They felt like their experience was not understood. It was not being conveyed. Um, and of course, a lot of the discussion, as with all current events, was about geopolitics and was about policy and was about should there be sanctions and should there not be sanctions and should there be intervention. And I thought, well, what could I possibly do for them when I'm not an expert on current Ukrainian politics and I don't work in current politics or geopolitics? I don't really understand understand finance well enough to understand the role of oligarchy and the effect of sanctions. And I thought, well, one thing I could do is I could try to give a human face to what was happening. I could do a profile of an intellectual choosing revolution and try to do what phenomenology tries to do, which is look at revolution as experience given to pure subjectivity. What did it mean for an individual to have this experience? You know, I could try to do that in some richly detailed way without making a political argument per se and just give that revolution a human face. Um, and so that, that was the project. And so the original title and the title of the original essay was A Phenomenology of the Ukrainian Revolution. Now, understandably, my extremely smart editor, Steve Wasserman, um, who was the one who pushed me to turn that essay into a book, he looked at that and said, you know, no phenomenology in titles of books. <laughs> you know, if anything <laughs> is going to turn off readers, it is the word phenomenology. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's interesting. You know, like, I remember years ago listening to an interview with a Heidegger scholar and they were talking about you know, Dasein and being and sort of being is, is not this like sort of metaphysical thing out there, but our, our experience of the world. And it's an asking an interesting question, like what does living in an age of terror do to Dasein? Like the trauma, you know, of nine of terrorist attacks that are publicly seen. And I mean, I was thinking of that as I was reading your book. It's like, what is, what does revolution do to the experience of being human? Um, and, and you, I mean, can I just read... Sure. To your own words. But I mean, I was on the fourth page of the book, you convey this incredibly powerful story of this uh, paramedic named Alicia. Oh, Alesha. <laughs> Alesha, Alesha Zukovska. Uh, and she's a paramedic and she was shot by a sniper. And she, you say, she, uh, uh, Alesha, who's wearing a white uniform with a red cross. She was exactly Misha's age, this other character. That, uh, not a character, this is a person in the book. I'm, I can't She was exactly Misha's age. 
As blood poured from her neck, she typed on her phone the Twitter message, I am dying. Uh, that passage is so arresting. And thinking about this woman, this paramedic's self-consciousness of her own mortality passing right there and then having the presence of mind to tweet it. Uh, that, I mean, can, like, can you say why a little bit about including that and, and why you include that so early? Yes. So what that that moment um, and I, I was following all this kind of streamed on the Internet at, at the time. In fact, I was following it through um, the live feed of Gazeta Wyborcza, a Polish newspaper, which I think was was offering the best coverage you know, of the languages in which I read in comfortably. The polls were really on top of this. Um, and that struck me as crystallizing something that had been going on throughout the whole revolution. It was a very Heideggerian moment. So for Heidegger, the only moment that you really get to be, that is fully your own, that is completely your own, Heidegger calls it Yemeinikite, is your own death. Everybody dies alone. Um, and this... This is why Heidegger is not a good beach read. Yes, exactly. Why Heidegger is not the beach read. Yes, that would, that would ruin your vacation. You know, and this sense that even at this moment of her own death, and let me just tell readers that she does survive. The, the doctors do a kind of heroic emergency surgery and she does survive, although she does not expect to at the time. Um, this violation of the intimacy of one's most intimate moment um, struck me as crystallizing something that I saw going on throughout the revolution, which is that what I call in the book a kind of dialectic between transparency and subjectivity. So because, you know, Yanukovych and, and Putin, you know, and various of their oligarchs controlled the mainstream media, the only way for the revolutionaries to kind of assert their own story, you know, against all of these, you know, un untruths um, and propaganda was to use social media. Um, and that use of social media was the precondition for asserting their own selves and their own stories. And they set up that revolutionaries themselves set up cameras on the Maidan. In effect, people live streamed themselves getting shot. You know, and so the violation of any kind of intimacy or private space, the self violation of any kind of intimacy in private space became the precondition for the assertion of subjectivity. Wow. All right. That's the deepest thing anyone said to me about social media in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, 
Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, and Charlotte Donlan. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You know, you also in the book, you talk about the this sort of your a, a wide European suspicion about this revolution, because among these sort of liberals and activists, you see neo-Nazi flags, too. Yeah. Uh, and and then and then you make the point, so, you know, I, actually, you're quoting someone who says, well, look, the, there are neo there are nationalists and, you know, the neo-fascist types in parliaments all over Europe. Why would they think we're different? Like, why, why would, like, right. it, it's, it's interesting that like this sort of seeming lack of self-awareness in European spectators of this revolution in 2014. Yes. Now there is definitely a sense, especially, and this was a kind of internal European issue. You know, I mean, this was an kind of internal European issue about Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And did the East Europeans get to be full-fledged Europeans, you know, and should a country like Ukraine, you know, ever be able to join the EU? And so that, that issue of, you know, were they too primitive? Were they too backwards? You know, were there neo-Nazis? Um, came as part of this discussion of, are they really European? Should they be part of us? Now, I'm looking at this discussion as a spectator and outsider. You know, people are constantly asking me these questions about who is a really European. I'm not European at all. You know, so I'm, I mean, I mean, in that sense, I have a distance from the whole conversation. But, but, um, Alexei Rajinsky, you know, who points that out, I mean, he's very on point. I mean, there was, you know, there was a radical right. There was a radical right on the Maidan and there is a radical right in Ukraine, you know, and they were getting, you know, one, two percent of the vote at a time when the radical rights in Austria, you know, and France are getting close to 20 percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting too that you, you tell this you tell the story right of the deposed uh, leader who was who was telling certain people that the crowd was full of gays and Jews and other liberals and other people he's telling it's all full of neo Nazis. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like playing playing the right off the left. Yes, right? yes, very much so. And you also, it's interesting too because you you talk about the significance of language in the book and. Yeah, yeah, the translator who you're profiling, I think it's him that says that Russia became for me the language of freedom. Uh, Taras Dopko. That was not the translator. That's oh, the last okay, okay. It was Taras. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry. No, that was a be- that was a beautiful moment for me because I felt like one of the ways in which, you know, the Western media had failed to understand Ukraine was that somehow, for whatever reason, perhaps because it's easier, you know, we like to fall into tropes about ethnic conflict, you know, and, and Ukraine, you know, has always been a big, complex, multilingual country. It's a bilingual country, you know, in which to, you know, grossly generalize, Russian tends to be stronger than Ukrainian in the East, and Ukrainian tends to be stronger in the West, but that obscures the kind of casual bilingualism that is the everyday condition. And so it was often portrayed as, well, you know, if these are, you know, Ukrainian speakers asserting Ukrainian over Russian, well, then they're nationalist and we don't want to support them. You know, and if they're Russians, well, you know, there's never been human rights and liberal democracy in Russia anyway. So you just kind of throw up your arms, which is obviously not a moral, morally sustainable position either. You know, either you believe, you know, in, in, in human rights and the rule of law, in which case it's for everybody, or you don't believe it. But the idea that, you know, you only believe it with certain borders doesn't really make any sense. Um, but that, 
there was an attempt to portray or to kind of create things as being a linguistic ethnic conflict, which was very much not true. And so one of the reasons, and Tara Stopko, who, who said that to me, who's a philosopher in, in Western Ukraine and Lviv, you know, and whose, you know, primary language is, is Ukrainian as well as he also has excellent English and he has good Polish and he reads in German and, you know, all of these people that I'm talking about are multilingual. But when he said that, you know, for me, it was on the Maidan that Russian became a language of freedom. You also quote him. He says that you're talking about the the police beating uh, citizens and 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 understanding that that taxpayers are having their own children beaten. And you see, he says that there was a feeling that we are taxpayers. We have we pay to have the police protect us. Um, and Dobko says, and now we see what the main task of the police is to beat our kids. And then this, you you talk about how this phrase it becomes popular. We will protect our children. And in the end of that chapter, you say, you tell the story. One of these beaten children was Taras Ratushny's 16-year-old son. Roman Ratushny's shoulder had been battered, but he was not scared away. He stayed on the Maidan. You must, your mother must have been very upset, I said, but she let you go back. And his response is, my mother was making Matov cocktail on Hrushchev Street. Hrushchev Street. I mean, that's such an amazing image. My mother is made Molotov cocktails. My mother never made a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> My mother has also never made a Molotov cocktail. I'm sure she would have no idea how to do it. No, what? I don't know that I trust my mother to just make me a regular cocktail. That, that, <laughs> I, I completely agree. I'm with you on that. <laughs> I would also not trust my mother to make me a regular cocktail. The situation has never arisen in which that has happened. Um, no, but w- one of the things as a historian that I found incredibly moving and, and somewhat exceptional is that I, I've re- I'd written elsewhere, you know, looking at the history of communism as, you know, it, it, through a kind of Freudian lens as a series of edible rebellions, each generation in its turn. You know, in 1968 in Poland, you know, and in Germany too, for that moment. I mean, you have, you know, children coming out against their parents. You know, the, the generation of solidarity, my, my friend Kostek Gebert, you know, told me who fought against the communists, who fought against the regime during the dissident era. He said, you know, everything good in me I have from my parents that I spent 12 years of my life trying to destroy the system they built. It was because of the values that they taught me. So there were all these successive Oedipal rebellions and 68 was very much about that. And here you have the situation where we think of revolution as the young people come out in the street and they come to revolt against the parents, against the system the parents created. And the young people come out on the street here, and this is the beginning of the Maidan. And then Yanukovych sends, you know, his riot police to brutally beat them up on November 30th, you know, and he's banking on the fact that now the parents are going to pull their kids off the streets. And that's the critical moment, because instead of pulling their kids off the streets, the parents join their kids there, you know, and the slogan becomes, you know, it cannot be permitted. We cannot permit them to beat our children. And that's the moment when it really turns into a revolution where suddenly you've got close to a million people on the streets the next day in Kiev. We will not let them beat our children. Do you, is that how revolutions start? You think is, are they always at some point like we can't permit this? Like, is it, is it, is it uh, in, oftentimes in terms of like what we'll permit and what we won't anymore? Revolutions are one of the reasons I find revolutions so interesting is revolutions are about borders. They're about crossing boundaries. You know, the, the Germans have this word, you know, called, called Grenzerfahrung, kind of border experience or, yeah, or yeah, Grenzsituation, yeah. a kind of border situation. Um, and, and revolutions are border situations. And the moment when, 
the moment when some line is crossed and you have some critical decision that comes down or some kind of existential transformation. And in some sense, these things happen in real life all the time, but revolution illuminates that moment where suddenly you see that border in a way you don't see it in every life. There's, if you remember um, Blanche in A Streetcar Named Desire, she says it was like you suddenly turned a blinding light on something that had always been half in shadow. Now, now she's talking about falling in love, but this but revolution is like that. You suddenly turn a blinding light on something that has been half in shadow, which is this moment of kind of crossing the border and making some kind of existential decision. Is that like stereotypical? Is there something like that in in kind of repressive context in Eastern Europe that people need to learn deception to live? Well, that, that's a complicated question. And it kind of varies from moment to historical moment to historical moment. Is There's an expression in Russian, which is very hard to translate, but let me try it. It's called Panimats um, Poluslova. Svetlana Boim wrote about this beautifully um, in, in one of her books. Um, and it means to understand with half words. Sometimes the, the Russians talk about, you know, understanding without words. And, you know, this was a skill, you know, that people developed, you know, when things could not be said aloud, you know, to understand one another without completely articulating something because the thing you wanted to say could not actually be articulated. It would be risky to articulate it. My wife said her favorite thing was touring the propaganda museum. And she said the tour guide was great. She's like, look at this old poster. People, family looks young and strong with bread. No one was uh, strong. No one looked that healthy. There was no bread. <laughs> yes. Now, the Stalinist era propaganda posters are, are amazing. I mean, they are, you know, everybody is kind of has this like ruddy complexion and is glowing. And, you know, there's the, the beautiful young man and the beautiful young woman riding on a tractor. You know, uh, everyone is, is healthy and athletic and well-fed. <laughs> but so, but socialist realism was about the mandate was, you know, it was supposed to be socialist in content of realist in form. But the idea was the realism was you portray the world not as it is today, but as it will be just around the corner, you know, surely by the time the book is published. I, I mean, we do that, too, in the West. Right. I mean, it, it's interesting because, I mean, we have more income inequality now. Right. Than I think since the Great Depression, the eve of the Great Depression. And yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's everything's, we kind of have this sort of way of casting with a naive optimism, right? <laughs> Liberalism kind of lives on that. We have grotesque income and inequality. Um, in a way that we, one thing Amer Americans don't understand that East Europeans do understand is Americans think that liberalism and democracy are synonymous. This is part of the Enlightenment illusion that let you let the majority decide and they're all going to be rational and nice and, you know, opt for liberalism. That, you know, East Europeans know that that's not true. You know, that the, the people, you know, quote unquote, can just as easily vote against liberalism, you know, and often enough had. It's not true that the more democratic conditions become necessarily the more liberal that things are going to come up. And Americans haven't really kind of grasped that. And they also haven't, I mean, they haven't, there's a kind of, cult of individualism that gives us a blind eye to the barbarian nature of, of inequality. I mean, Hegel has this idea um, that, that Marx takes up um, about when, when quantity turns into quality. 
You know, Hegel says, like, there's a moment at which quantitative changes become so great that they are, in effect, qualitative changes. That changes in scale become changes in kind. You know, like, like when water boils, in some sense. So it's one thing to say, you know, of course there has to be income inequality because if you have complete equality, you have no freedom and the space for freedom implies a space for equality. And of course, some people are going to have more and some people have less. But there's a moment when that, the, the, the extent of the difference crosses a border, you know, and then you have a new phenomenon. And that's what we have now. It, it's interesting because you talk about in a chapter called the solidarity of the shaken. You said that um, you're quoting this Polish philosopher, Marcin Kroll. And he said, what we're dealing with is a moderate economic crisis, a serious political crisis, a dramatic civilizational crisis, and a perhaps fatal spiritual crisis. And this journalist asked, well, what's the fatal spiritual crisis? We've ceased posing questions to ourselves. And the journalist says, what kind of questions? Metaphysical questions. No one contemplates, for instance, where evil comes. And you say, Adam Mishnick agreed. This is a civilization that needs metaphysics. He told Vaclav Havel in 2003, and you say the Maidan was the return of medicine. In what sense? The Maidan was the moment when politics crossed beyond the realm of politics and became existential, where suddenly you have laid bare conversations about values that transcend individual interest. That suddenly these questions about what is good and what is evil and what is worth staking your life on and what is worth dying for are kind of laid bare, you know, and, and that's, that, that was one of the reasons why I couldn't turn away, you know, in all the years that I've been coming to Eastern Europe, which is my whole adult life now that I've been hanging out here. This was the most extraordinary thing that I've seen play out in real time. You know, and, and in some sense, you know, for me, this was, this was like getting to see something that I had heard so many stories about, you know, from my friends in Eastern Europe who are older than I am, you know, and from people who are no longer alive. Um, but I had missed because I didn't get there early enough. You know, and now I got to see it. Like, I think for, you know, for the people like, like Adam Miknick and Costa Gebert, who I mentioned, who are kind of veterans of solidarity, this was the miracle they never thought they would live to see a second time in their lifetimes. And they understood that they were watching something that was extraordinarily fragile, necessarily ephemeral, and infinitely precious. Yeah, I don't hear people saying, like, in American culture, especially like, uh, academics, intellectuals, hey, hey, we need to return to metaphysics. <laughs> no, this is like, why you, I, I love mean, Eastern Europe. This is why you have to kind of hang out with East European intellectuals because they talk about metaphysics. This why, is a why seduction. Is why, do they, why do they talk about it and we don't? Yeah. No, that's a good question. There's a huge cultural split and it has always been one of the seductions for me, you know, of intellectual life in Eastern Europe, that it's, it's less pragmatic, that it's less professionalized, that there still is this notion of the intellectual who, you know, sits in cafes and writes poetry and napkins and talks about ideas and believes in ideas. You know, it's not that many people, you know, to be fair, but there's still some element of that, that that's left. Um, and I've, I mean, that, that's what seduced me, you know, when I first got there in the early 1990s. I mean, I went there for the first time. I went to Prague in 1993, you know, with this senior thesis project as an undergraduate writing about the political philosophy of you know, dissidents in Czechoslovakia. I was working on Charter 77. And the first interview I had, this man named Bohemir Janat, who had been a student of Jan Patoška's, and he signed Charter 77, and he said to me, 
you know, and, and I asked him, I had all my like nice, you know, political science questions written out from like my, all my political theory that I had learned at Stanford. And I said, well, why did you decide, you know, why, why did you decide to use the tactic of nonviolence against the communist regime? And he looked at me and said, because violence is a tool used by cowards who refuse to carry their own existential burden. You know? mm. And I knew that I was in a different space. Mm. You know, and I was about to enter a different kind of conversation and I had to let go of some of the categories, you know, that I had on one side of the Atlantic and open myself to other categories. And that the appeal of that has never left me, that there are still people who believe in those kinds of ideas. My wife talked, has told me lots of stories about this strange relationship in, say, Russia with the Orthodox Church, which you, you know, okay, we're officially atheists now that we're communist. And yet it's sort of hard to get, you know, I mean, it's hard, hard to sanitize things that much. She was telling me recently like that, that, that you have to figure out something to do with Christmas though. So then New Year's becomes the big thing and Father Winter, or whatever, you know, everybody takes turns dressing up as Father Winter and, you know, you bring gifts for kids and get vodka shots and, you know, you kind of run around the neighborhood. And, you know, and now, I mean, there is this sort of almost, I mean, it seems like Vladimir Putin has romanticized the Orthodox Church now. It's become part of the, you know, it, it's back in vogue. I'm wondering what spirituality and religion is like in the in the context of like the Ukraine, where the Iron Curtain is now down again. Like, because I, 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 like, how does the sort of relationship of repression and now openness to things like religiosity, like, what does that look like on the ground there? The Maidan was a very ecumenical moment. I, and it was a moment in which, you know, people from, I mean, there's, there's a Greek Catholic church, which, a, a Uniate church, you know, there's a, a, a Russian Orthodox church, there's a, you know, an, an Orthodox church, which is a kind of Kiev patriarchy with the Moscow patriarchy, there are, you know, there are Jews, um, there are Muslims there, and, and the Maidan was this, like, very ecumenical moment of spiritual leaders from all of these different places coming together. You know, and of course, you know, different churches or different people in different churches, you know, are going to, to play different roles. It was an extraordinary moment of a kind of, uh, for Ukrainian Jewish relations. And that's one of the stories I tell in the book as well. Hey, it's interesting because you, you, you just said that, you know, Eastern Europeans talk about metaphysics and these sorts of things. And, and, and the liberal West, it's almost like, well, the only way we can go on as a liberal society is not to need things like metaphysics or, or a sort of established religion or, or, or kind of, you know, ethos and things like that. I mean, is that. Do you think as, you know, post-revolution in places like Ukraine, I mean, what's the relationship of, of metaphysics, of religion going to be, you think, with the desire to create, you know, a, a, a more robust civil society and political community? Very, very diverse, extremely diverse, you know, kind of varying from, you know, to, from church to church and from community to community. And the dramatic story in Poland was that, you know, during the solidarity era, um, when, when, when Karl Wojtyla was Pope John Paul II, you know, the church was a sign of moral freedom. You know, there were many, you know, there were many children of former, of, of Stalinist, you know, who, who were, you know, themselves of Jewish origin, who had their children baptized because they were dissidents, you know, and the church was supporting solidarity and it was a sign of moral freedom. Karl Wojtyla was enormously important, you know, as a voice of that moral freedom, as was Yusuf Tischner, the chaplain of solidarity, you know, who was a theologian and a philosopher, um, and is somebody else who's kind of missed every day. I mean, currently, the Catholic Church 
Jewish in Poland is playing a kind of horrific role, you know, as being anti, anti-Semitic, being xenophobic, you know, being anti-refugee and being on the radical right, declaring a war on gender. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it's a question of the individuals and the moment and the particular people. The folks you talk to who are people that are activists and thinkers, I wonder, like, as they're thinking about what kind of society they'd like in a place like the Ukraine, in what sense do they conceive of things that, like, what's done wrong in the West? What's done wrong in sort of Anglo-American democratic projects or in other Europe? I mean, in what sense are they like, hey, um, this is where we would do it differently? Well, one of, I mean, one of the things that, you know, Václav Havel was obsessed with, you know, the day of his death was that, you know, what, that great disappointment with what came after 1989. And this is something that he and Adam Miknik talked about in a, um, the book of conversations has recently been published. Um, Elspieta Martina did it, um, did a very good job with that, that we wanted to create new values and somehow, you know, the wicked witch died and instead we got cheap consumer capitalism, you know, and to a large extent, robber baron capitalism. And, and this wasn't actually what we wanted. You know, it used to be that, you know, people were taking great risk, you know, to read great literature, you know, and to pass around Sami's dot poems, you know, and now, you know, everybody, you know, wants, you know, new French perfume. And that was not what we thought that we were fighting for. Um, and so there's, there's been that. Um, there's also the sense of, I mean, to a large extent, what you got, and this is Russia still going through the trauma of the 1990s, you know, so you get, you, you think that, you know, you take away communism. Nobody really knew how to transition from a communist economy to a capitalist economy, you know, and as it played out, you got, you know, in some places you got shock therapy, you got horrific, grotesque corruption, you got robber baron capitalism, you got capitalism with no rules and no accountability of a kind of Upton Sinclair 19th century variety. Um, and nobody wanted that. You know, nobody wanted this kind of free for all. Anyone can get cheated and exploited as much as possible. Even when, when Obama, you know, devoted the whole first year of his presidency to trying to get health care for as many Americans as possible, you know, East Europeans together with West Europeans just could not understand. I and mean, people kept asking me, they're like, what is the issue? I mean, who thinks that people should not have health care? You know, no one's individualism went that far, you know, as to think that, you know, not everybody should have health care. I'm struck right now. I mean, we talked about this a little earlier, but I just want to revisit. I mean, because of this current administration and what's going on and the Mueller, pro- I mean, Russia, the Ukraine, Paul Manafort, this is so much more in American consciousness, at least at a superficial level. What does all that story mean practically? Like someone who actually has spent lots of time in this part of the world, uh, what is like? What's the the takeaway that you have from from this story from the from the East kind of West influence East influencing West this the efforts to sort of influence elections the inf- the efforts to sort of divide our civil society um, like what I mean what what should Americans be thinking about? as this story continues to unfold? Well, people like Yanukovych, you know, Paul Manafort were working for. I mean, Manafort is essentially has this kind of boutique industry doing PR, you know, for gangsters, you know, with presidential ambitions. 
I mean, Yanukovych was not the kind of. I mean, Yanukovych is basically a gangster. And what you think? You you think that's on his business card? <laughs> I've got a boutique business for gangsters with politicians. <laughs> that's what I do. But that, but that basically is what he. I mean, Ukraine. That's all kind of laid bare. Nobody understands it in any other way. But America is there. You kind of who is it in the book that you say this? Somebody said it's not that he's a gangster. It's that he's a petty. <laughs> that's that's why I was quoting my friend Ivan Krastyev. No, that's what struck me about. Yanukovych, in contrast to Putin, I mean, Putin does spin a story, you know, for Russians about, you know, the Russian world and Eurasia and the grand empire and noble history and sacrifice. And Yanukovych was just nakedly, unapologetically a gangster. And Ivan's point is that he wasn't even a particularly impressive gangster. He wasn't like, he wasn't particularly smart. He wasn't particularly charismatic. Um, there wasn't anything very special about him. He was obviously slimy. He was uncomfortable cultured. He wasn't a very good speaker. And he didn't even offer people any kind of grand narrative, you know, or any kind of story of some kind of transcendent meaning for present suffering. He was just like, hey, here I am. The next gangster could be worse. Should we be concerned? I mean, like what this kind of East influencing West kind of thing. What does that mean for American public life? Like the fact that Donald Trump has this weird relationship with Vladimir Putin, although he's never met the man. Well, one day he's never met the man. The next day he talks to him on the phone, you know, whatever this. I mean, this what's it mean for the Ukraine? I mean, like, how do you what like what what's significant about the story that that we miss on, you know, ever illuminating cable news? Well, one thing I found is that, you know, after, you know, last fall, you know, during and after the elections, you know, I had, I had American journalists coming to me and asking me to put them in touch with Russian and Ukrainian journalists who had experience being in this world of post-truth. Because, um, mm. because American journalists, I mean, there's a tradition of fact checking, you know, the best publications do fact checking. And the assumption is that you're checking individual facts. But the idea that there's some complete unhinging from empirical reality, you know, that there, that you can be in this totally fictitious world in which, well, maybe X, maybe Y, maybe anything is possible. Americans didn't really have experience of that complete unhinging from empirical reality. You know, and East Europeans did. I mean, this idea of post-truth did. And the interesting thing that's been happening is really that, that I've been fascinated by. And this is a conversation I've been having with Masha Gessen, among other people. Like, how is this kind of encroaching totalitarianism different from the totalitarianism of the 20th century? You, you, you know Masha Gessen? I do. I do. She's fascinating. She's great. We're, we're, we're I mean, very yeah, I mean, different she... writers and very different personalities. And she's, I, 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 I respect her tremendously. I mean, her feeling is that like the similarities are probably more important than differences. As an intellectual historian, I'm kind of fascinated by how you go from, in, in the Soviet times, you had propaganda, you know, which is you had a coherent story. Like my Russian friends, you know, tell me that, okay, you know, communist times, you turn on the television, you know, it's going to be lies, but you also know the story that's going to be told because it's consistent. It develops. There are certain rules. There's a the structured narrative. The narrative goes in a certain direction. Everything has to be made to fit. They said, now it's just like schizophrenia. You and you turn on the television and, you know, one day Turkey, Turkey's our best friend. The next day Turkey's our worst enemy. Maybe this, maybe that, anything is possible, you know, and instead of having you believe one single, albeit false, alternative narrative. Now, any kind of sense that there's any groundedness of truth at all is being undermined. And I, I give you an example of this. I turned on, I was trying to, to watch Russia Today um, and see what, what the English version of Russia Today was like, which is the Kremlin's propaganda channel. 
um, and the beginnings of the war in the Donbass. You know, and Putin's line was that, you know, there are no Russian soldiers in the Donbass, that this is just a Ukrainian civil war, and that, you know, because there was a CIA-sponsored, you know, fascist takeover in Kiev, understandably, these poor persecuted Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine are trying to break away because the CIA-sponsored fascists from Kiev are coming to kill them. Um, and so the, the, the episode of Russia Today, which was hosted by this American guy who seemed to be in his 20s, barely spoke any Russian, you know, it was kind of this comical, jovial figure. And it sat in what seems to be the Donbass during the war, although who knows where he really was. And he's like, hey, I keep hearing that there are Russian soldiers in the Donbass. So I thought, like, today we would check that out. Look, there are some guys in camouflage. Why don't I wander over and see if they're Russians? And he's like, Zdrasto, a priviet, priviet, um, hi, um, the Ruski, like, are you Russian? And they're like, they're like shaking their head no. And he's like, hmm, I don't know. These guys don't seem to be Russian. Well, let's look some more. Like, maybe the next group of guys, look, I see some more guys wearing green. Like, maybe they're Russian. Let's kind of wander over to there and try out my three words of Russian on them. So, like, you're, it, it's not telling you a story that's, like, consistent about, like, look, you know, here are the CIA-sponsored fascists. They're doing X. We're doing Y. You know, we have to fight for freedom. It's just, like, who knows, really? Anything is possible. I don't see any of these guys, but, you know, we're just kind of bumbling around in this fictitious world. And I, I don't know if these things coincide. I, I, I guess the, the post-truth kind of environment and then also this sort of lack of an appreciation for a, a really democratic ethos. And I mean, I, you know, whatever your politics are, it, it's hard for me to think anyone believes that Donald Trump, for instance, has any sympathy for democratic value. I mean, just just not I mean, like zero. I mean, it's just I mean, this is why I kind of like I, it seems like autocrats really impress him. I mean, that it's kind of fun. I mean, these are people he really President G and my chocolate. Cake. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, this is after President G's great political victory. Oh, yeah, it's it, it's pretty easy. And it sets out to have a big victory. Like, right. I mean, that is that. No, no. You're a student of a part of the world where there's a lot of experience with leaders that have no sympathy for democratic values. It's just it's strange, right, that that would happen in the United States. I mean, that, I think that's a it's a it's hopefully a consciousness raising thing. But I, don't, I mean, although maybe it won't be. I don't know. It, it was I think it was more deeply terrifying to me. You know, and this is considering, you know, everybody I know was horrified by this than to some of my Americanist colleagues. I felt like the split after the election, you know, was not like, is this good or is this bad? But there was a split, I would say, between like my Americanist colleagues who work on American politics and history, um, many of them to generalize, um, and, and my kind of East Europeanist Slavicist colleagues, you know, where the Americanists said, okay, this is very bad. It's going to be a rough four years, you know, but we are, you know, we are, have a strong liberal democratic tradition. We have the best democratic institutions in the world, you know, and ultimately we have checks and balances and somehow we're going to pull through this, you know, and, you know, people like myself and Masha Gessen who are like, no, we are now at the edge of an abyss. <laughs> like, I mean, what East Europeans understand is that everything can look normal, but it can turn on a dime. Um, that, that there, there, there's no there's no guarantee. They appreciate that fragility. I mean, Donald Donald Trump's election. I I really felt like this is the end, and I you know my husband and I should pack up my children and flee the country. I mean, you weren't alone in that. Yes, right? no, no, I mean, that's that, true. That, yeah. that's, this was certainly you know widely shared. I just read a review this week uh, 
written by Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, of a book by John Milbank and Adrian Papps, which is sort of about the crisis of liberalism and capitalism. And Rowan Williams says, and he's kind of describing Milbank and Papp's position. He says, the actuality of the world, real relationships, real production, real social activity, even the reality of the physical environment becomes malleable because everything is a potential tool for bartering in the competition for control. Uh, no wonder we find ourselves in a position where, as John Milbank and Adrian Papps write, our humanity seems to be balanced between the purely animal and the purely and arbitrary artificial. From this flow, all the ills of culture and politics in our in our world, what we are now refusing to grasp is that, quote unquote, liberalism, in fact, undermines democracy, ethics, human respect, social justice, scientific creativity, and pretty well everything else. I mean, and he's, I mean, maybe Milbank and, and perhaps it sounds like they're a little extreme in their critique of liberalism. But there are some, is there something to that point that, that liberalism is seeming to undermine some of the things it promised us? It's always been the case. I mean, this is, I'll, I'll draw on, I'll draw on an argument made most famously by Isaiah Berlin and Lasha Kolokolsky, you know, towards the, in his post-Marxist years. Um, which is that utopia is impossible because some good things exclude other good things. You know, there, there is no such possibility, you know, of perfect freedom and perfect equality and perfect justice and perfect mercy because those things are in tension with one another. You know, perhaps not in the radical sense that Hobbes told us, which is that liberty and security is an absolute zero sum game, but those things are in real tension with one another. Um, and, you know, to try to make liberalism work is to kind of grapple with that tension with eyes wide open. You know, it's one thing to say people have legal equality, you know, but to have legal equality, you know, and to have freedom means the economic freedom results, you know, in children growing up in barbarian conditions that are not suited for human beings to be grown, to be growing up in, you know, and how do you then expect them, you know, to be fully participating as democratic system? What, you know, when you haven't fed them properly, when you haven't given them proper health care, you know, when you've sent them to schools that are racked with violence, you know, where they don't feel safe sitting in a classroom, you know, how do you then expect them to fulfill the rights and responsibilities of democratic citizenship when you've thrown them to the wolves with the economic inequality. And we, we don't grapple with that because we say, well, we believe in freedom, you know, and freedom necessarily results in inequality and we don't grapple with the contradictions. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And it, again, this is, goes back to your point in the book, like, gosh, maybe we need some more grappling with metaphors. <laughs> right. <laughs> At the end of the book, you talk about how, um, you say that Jerko, Jerko had grown, Jerko had grown epistemologically modest. He had resigned from the idea that the whole world was translatable, that revolution as a whole could be understood to its depth. He knew that the future could not be foreseen, that the time of myth-making was still to come, that anything could happen. And I mean, I wonder how you, like, how you hold intention, right? The, the sort of uh, audacity to nurture metaphysical conversations, right? And also epistemic humility and modesty. I mean, how do you hold those in creative tension, right? Because it seems like it seems like in ending the book this way, you're, this is. I mean, it seems like you're extolling that, and, and it, it seems like that's what that's kind of an ideal, right? I mean, if if you can get both of those things, but they seem in a kind of tension. Uh, one one thing I always tell my students, I mean, and now my my young children, um, 
I taught a freshman seminar this semester on understanding totalitarianism, you know, in which we looked at things like, you know, is evil radical or is it banal, you know, and how do you evaluate morality when people find themselves in situations in which there are no innocent choices, in which any decision you make is going to cause suffering to someone or something, you know, and, you know, one thing I, I telling the students is that, you know, the moral imperative is to pose these questions and keep asking them and keep struggling with them. If there were, if there were, you know, clear, easy answers, we wouldn't be sitting here struggling through them. You know, I'm not going to, I feel like I can take them through ideally a transformative experience, but I cannot take them to the end of the semester and say, okay, we've cleared all that up for now, you know, because the really important questions we're not going to clear up. Um, my, my, my son, when he was two years ago and he was in kindergarten, um, he came home from kindergarten um, and having learned about Martin Luther King Day. And this was a complete shock to him because for better or for worse, you know, we had tried to conceal, you know, racism from him. We had tried to put our children, you know, in a world that was sufficiently cosmopolitan, you know, that they were sheltered from that. And maybe that was a good thing and maybe that was a bad thing. But in any case, he came home from kindergarten totally shocked and said, you know, and, and wouldn't go to sleep and kept saying, but mommy, why would the people with light skin be mean to the people with dark skin? That wasn't fair. Why would they do that? Why? And I, I said, I don't know how to explain it to you. And he said, but you have to try, mommy. You have to try. Why? It doesn't make sense. Why? It's an excellent question. You know, it, it, it's an excellent question. And it's a question we have to keep asking. But obviously, it's a question I can't, you know, answer, you know, for my five-year-old, you know, in, in an evening. Well, anybody that's concerned about those questions, they would do well to read your book, Ukrainian Night, because um, you get at the heart of some of those questions in, in a way that's it's just a really compelling read. Oh. And um, thanks. Thanks for taking some time to talk. With um, thank you so much, Scott. Thanks. Uh, we'll have you back on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Marcy for coming on the podcast. Please check out her book, Ukrainian Night, an Intimate History of Revolution. You will not be sorry. And thank you again for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>